Well, this evening we're going to study a very important subject. We're going to actually study three doctrines of the Adventist Church which are distinctive. In other words, they are unique to the Adventist Church. Before we do, we want to ask for the Lord's blessing. So I invite you to bow your heads with me as we pray. Father in heaven, it's uh, with joy in our hearts and also peace in our hearts that we come before your throne right at the beginning of your holy Sabbath. Father, thank you so much for giving us one whole day where we can suspend everything ours and just bask in your presence, enjoy full and complete rest in you. What a wonderful gift you have given us. Father, we thank you also for the privilege of being here at this camp meeting. We thank you that we are able to freely open your word, to study it. We know that this privilege is going to come to an end sooner rather than later. So help us, Lord, to enjoy this privilege in these times of relative peace. We're going to study three very important uh, doctrines of the church tonight, and we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit. I ask that you will give us understanding and that you will help us, Lord, to realize that we are living in the last days and we must make a total and complete consecration of everything that we are and everything we have to you. We thank you, Father, for the privilege of prayer and for hearing us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The three doctrines that we're going to take a look at are all interlinked. In other words, they must be studied together. I'm referring to the doctrine of the state of the dead, the doctrine of the investigative judgment, and the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. And we're going to see how these three doctrines relate with one another. This is going to be more of a study than a sermon. You know, I enjoy teaching more than I enjoy preaching. Probably that's the reason why I repeat so much. <laughs> As I was mentioning last night, my wife says that I repeat a lot. She's right. You know, I do repeat a lot. Where we disagree is that it's wrong to do it. <laughs> I want to begin our study in Genesis 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7. A verse that we always use to discuss the state of the dead. It says there, and we're going to unpack this verse, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Now, have you ever tried to form something out of dust? You can't form anything out of dust. Actually, what God used was wet dust. He used clay. In Isaiah 64, verse 8, we're told that God is the potter and we are the clay. In other words, God used wet dust. He used clay. He formed Adam with his own hands. And when God formed Adam, he made the body complete 
with everything that was needed to sustain life. All of the organs were in the body. There was a nervous system, there was a circulatory system, there was a digestive system. There, everything was in the body that God created. However, there was a problem with the body. And that is that the body was lifeless. Did you notice I didn't say that it was dead? Because there was no death. The body was lifeless. It had all of its parts. It had all of the members of the body. But they could not function. And so the Bible tells us that God energized the body. So that every part of the body would begin to fulfill its particular function. And that's what the second part of verse 7 says. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So now the heart began to pump blood. The stomach would soon begin to digest. The lungs began to breathe. The hormonal system began to function. The eyes began to see. The ears began to hear. Every part of the body began to fulfill its function because the body had received the spirit. The body had been energized by the spirit. Now, in the head of that body, God placed the brain which is the processor, if you please, of the body. The brain records and classifies everything that comes in through the five senses of our bodies. In other words, it is the control and command center of the body. And everything that takes place in our life, whether it be thoughts or actions or words, come from thinking and are recorded indelibly in our brain. Now, we might not be able to retrieve everything instantly uh, because we're not antediluvians who had photographic memories and could retrieve their memories instantly, but everything is recorded. Our entire character, our entire self-identity is found in our brain. So when God created Adam, and we're going to use Adam as our prime example in our study today, God made his body out of clay, placed in the body everything it needed to function, energized the body by giving it the spirit or the breath of life, and Adam began to function. And he began to write his own self-identity. He began to write his own personality. He began to develop his own character. He was not created with a character. He had to develop his character as he lived by what entered his five senses. That determined who he was because our self-identity is recorded in the brain. Now the question is, what happened when Adam died? How long did Adam live? He lived 930 years. Let me ask you, do you think Adam 
was a different person when he died than when he was just created? Oh, yes. Did he have a very complex self-identity? A very complex character? Everything that had come through his five senses had made him who he was. He had a very complex and well-developed self-identity. In other words, his self-identity or his character was found in his brain. Now what happened when Adam died? Let's read texts that we always read when we study the state of the dead. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 7. It's a reversal of creation. It says there, then the dust, synonymous with the body, the dust will return to the earth as it was. And the spirit will return to God who gave it. So what happens with the body when Adam dies? When Adam dies, his body goes to the earth and eventually what? Disintegrates. Let me ask you, did his brain also disintegrate? Yes. You see, the breath goes out and the body can't function anymore because it's the energizing force. So when Adam goes to the grave, in the course of time, his brain is going to decompose with his body, and what is going to happen with the 930 years of self-identity or the 930 years of character of, or individuality or personality, as you wish to call it, what happens with the 930 years of character or individuality or self-identity that Adam developed? It decomposes with the brain. Because your self-identity is where? Your self-identity is in your brain. It's the processing center of the body. Notice what we find in Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. Psalm 146, verses 3 and 4. There it speaks about the thinking. What happens when a person dies with your thinking? It says, Put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man, in whom there is no help. His breath goeth forth, in other words, he, he expires, if you please. He returneth to his earth. That's the body, right? So the breath goes out of the body. And the body returns to the earth. In that very day, he knows everything. No. In that day, his what? His thoughts perish. Why do his thoughts perish? Because his body goes to the grave and his brain goes with the body. The 930 years that Adam formed during his lifetime went to the grave with him and decomposed. Notice two other texts. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 5. These are verses that we always use. It says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know not 
anything. Do you need your brain to know? Yes. But the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Why is the memory forgotten? Because your memory depends on your brain. Notice also verse 10 of Ecclesiastes 9. Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. Where does knowledge and wisdom reside? In your brain. There is no knowledge nor wisdom in the grave whither thou goest. So basically, Adam finished writing his self-identity when he breathed his last. And his body went to the earth along with his brain and his self-identity disintegrated. That sounds pretty nihilistic, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds pretty depressing. Now, here is a question I want to ask you. What happened then with the 930 years of self-identity that Adam wrote while he was alive? It went to the grave and decomposed. But now comes the good news. You see, all during the 930 years that Adam lived, God was saving a backup in the heavenly books. <laughs> You see, when the Bible uses the word books, plural, it's referring to your life record. And there's a book for your words, there's a book for your actions, there's a book for your thoughts, there's a book for your feelings. There are different books that have different aspects. That's why it's books, plural. But the books have your self-identity, a record of your character, everything that you did while you were alive. In other words, there's a complete biography of Adam in the heavenly records, in the heavenly books. Every action, every motive, every word, every feeling, every emotion, every secret and every thought is there, written in the books. There is another Adam in written form in the heavenly books. Now let's read some Bible verses. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10 on this point. What do the books contain? They contain a complete biography of Adam inside and out. And remember we're using Adam, but we could speak about anybody. But Adam is the example that we want to use. And you'll understand the reason why in a few moments. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. How many of us? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may receive the things done in the body. That means while you were alive on earth. According to what he has done, whether good or bad. Does God keep a record of our good and bad actions? Yeah, because we're going to have to render account someday for them before the judgment seat of Christ. So there must be a record. Are you with me or not? 
So our actions, it says, according to what he has done, our actions are recorded in the books. What about our words? Are our words also recorded? Yes, they are. Matthew 12, 36 and 37. Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37. Here Jesus is speaking to the Jewish uh, leaders, and he speaks some awful, awesome words. He said this, But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Does God keep a record of our words too? Yeah, we're going to have to render an account, so they must be kept. So our actions are kept in the records. Our words are kept in the records. How about the secret things that nobody sees? Notice Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verses 13 and 14. You know, you got to bring your Bible when I preach. Or else you're going to be lost. Not eternally lost. <laughs> but it'll be more difficult to follow along and to understand. You know, um, there, there's a drought of Scripture in the pulpit these days. And, and Scripture, that's where the power is. Power's not in the preacher. The power's in the Word. But if the preacher does not preach the Word, there's no power. Now notice Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work, see there we have the actions again, every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Does God keep a record of our inside also? Yes, he does. He keeps a record of our thoughts and our feelings, our emotions, our motives. He keeps a record of that. God, in the heavenly books, keeps a record, an exact record of who we were while we lived on this earth. A perfect backup. Now let's go to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and and 10. Once again, we're going to notice here that there are books that are going to be examined in the judgment. This is talking, of course, about the little horn. And you know what's interesting is that, you know, scholars, in the, even in the Adventist church, get all hung up about Daniel 7. They say, you can't use Daniel 7 to talk about the investigative judgment of the righteous before the second coming because it's the little horn that's being judged. You ever heard that before? That's what they say. Now it's true that if you read Daniel 7, it's the little horn that's being judged. But the little horn is being judged because it oppressed the saints of the Most High. And the purpose of the judgment is to give the kingdom to the saints of the Most High. To reverse the judgment of the little horn against God's people and to reward God's people with the kingdom. So God's people are in view in this judgment. Are you with me? Now notice Daniel 7 and verses 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Who is the Ancient of Days? God, where does he live? In heaven. Notice it doesn't say, Jesus didn't say, Our Father which art everywhere. 
God is everywhere through his infinite knowledge. But he sits on his throne in heaven. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Who are those? The angels. The court was seated and the books were opened. See, what do the books contain? Adam's complete biography. The complete biography of every human being that has ever lived in the history of planet Earth. You see, God knew that because of sin, we were going to go to the Earth and we were going to disintegrate. But God says, hey, I'm going to save a backup. I'm going to save an exact transcript of the life of every single person. Let's notice also Revelation chapter 20, 12, and 13. Revelation 20, verses 12 and 13. Now let me just mention this. This is not speaking about the investigative judgment of the righteous before the second coming. It's speaking about the judgment of the wicked during the millennium in heaven. You know, we're going to be participating in a work of judgment, examining the cases of the wicked during the thousand years. Well, that's what this these two verses are talking about. However, the reason I'm using it here is because the process that is followed by examining the records of the wicked during the millennium is the same process that God uses before the second coming with the righteous. The process is the same. So I want us to understand the process. It says there in Revelation 20 verses 12 and 13, And I saw the dead... Small and great standing before God. How can a dead person stand before God? We're going to answer that question in a few moments. See, most Christians say, well, it's the soul that goes before God. This is a problematic text. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. See the books again? What do the books contain? The complete biography, the character, the self-identity, the personality, the individuality. You can call it whatever you wish. So it says, and books were opened. And now comes something very interesting. And another book was opened. Wow, there's books and there is book. Are they the same? No, because it says another book is open. Now what do the books contain? Let's continue reading. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So what is it that's written in the books? The works. In other words, your actions. And we all notice that also our words and the secret things, this verse doesn't mention everything. Now, did you notice here that twice it says, I saw the dead, 
small and great, standing before God. And then at the end of the verse it says, and the dead were judged according to their works. So they're appearing before God's judgment seat. How? Dead. And you say, now wait a minute. How can they appear before the judgment seat of God? Dead. Are you seeing that uh, the investigative judgment has something to do with the state of the dead? It'll become clearer and clearer as we go along. Now, as I was mentioning, the heavenly books contain a complete biography of Adam. Every act, every word, every motive, every thought, every emotion, every opportunity to do good that he did not take advantage of. There's a complete record of Adam inside and out. God has another Adam in written form in heaven. Now, I believe that if God called a prophet today, God would refer to something different than books. See, in the Bible, and really the word books in the Bible means, means a parchment, a scroll. They didn't, have, they didn't have codices in New Testament times, books like we have, bound books. They had, you know, rolls of parchment. So because the prophet in that day, that was the way that they kept records, you know, God spoke to the, to the prophet in the language of the prophet. He said, books, you know, if God had said that uh, our life is being photographed in heaven, the prophet wouldn't have understood what God was saying. Now let me read you a couple of statements from Ellen White. Ellen White stated that our lives are being photographed in heaven because photography had come on the scene. Let me read you a couple of statements from Ellen White. The first is in the book, In Heavenly Places, page 360. In Heavenly Places, page 360. She says, as the artist takes on the polished glass a true picture of the human face, so the angels of God, listen carefully now, so the angels of God daily place upon the books of heaven an exact representation of the character of every human being. Did that register? Let me read it again. As the artist takes on the polished glass a picture of the human face, a true picture of the human face, so the angels of God daily place upon the books of heaven an exact representation of the character of every human being. And your character is what you are. In another statement, Ellen White talks about God photographing our lives. And she uses an old English word, daguerreotyped. <laughs> you know, that's a, that means photography. We don't use that word anymore. In the book, Testimonies on Sexual Behavior, Adultery and Divorce, page 62, Ellen White stated, remember your character is being daguerreotyped, that is photographed, by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist. So basically Ellen White is, is stating, using photography, she's saying that our lives are being photographed. 
I believe today that a prophet would say our lives are being videotaped. Or even further, our lives are being computerized digitally. He said, now, don't add to the Bible. I'm going to share some interesting things with you in a few moments. Now, we've talked about the content of the books. Is that clear? The books, the life record, self-identity, individuality, personality, character, whatever you want to call it. Complete biography of Adam. But the question is, what is in the book singular? Well, the Bible tells us. Let's read several verses. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. Here the Apostle Paul is talking about several of his companions that worked with him in the preaching of the gospel. And uh, there the Apostle Paul states this. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What does the book contain? Names. Let me ask you, when is your name written in the book of life? When you accept Christ as your Savior and you are baptized. Ellen White is a clear statement. Your name is written in the book of life and it's done chronologically. As people accept Christ, they're written in chronological order in the book of life. I'm going to prove that to you. So who was the first person to be written in the book of life? Adam. You remember he offered the first sacrifice? He was the first to have his name written in the book of life. So who would be judged first when the book is brought forth with the names in their order? Adam. See what Ellen White says makes all the sense in the world. The little lady knew what she was talking about. It's because people don't study, that they say, oh, she's adding to the Bible. No, 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 no. Think. Read carefully. Investigate. Research. It's not enough to read the Bible. Jesus did not say, read the scriptures. He said, search the scriptures. There's so much more to be found. I believe that one of the reasons why, you know, our youth and, and others get bored in the church is because they, see, they hear the same old things over and over and over again. The same way of presenting the message. There are new and fresh ways to present the message. That's what attracted people to Jesus. Ellen White says he took the old truths and he gave them a new, a new clothing. People said, this is new. We've never heard it before. But it wasn't new. It was just a new way of presenting it. We have to think about fresh ways of presenting old things. Because if we don't, the old things become old. And then people lose interest. Notice Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. Once again, we're dealing with what is contained in the book. Singular. The book. Oh, how beautiful it is to hear those pages of the Bible. It's like a symphony. <laughs> it's beautiful. You know, pastors like two noises in church, and it's not the cell phone. <laughs> the, two, the two noises that we love is to hear the pages of the Bible turning. And secondly, 
we love to hear an amen once in a while. You know, we, 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 we don't say amen because they say, that's Pentecostal. Then the angels must be Pentecostals. <laughs> because the angels say amen and hallelujah. So if something touches your heart, say amen. Don't clap. This clapping is a secular response to a secular event. You don't find people clapping in the Bible in worship scenes. You see them saying amen and hallelujah. And Ellen White says that we're supposed to worship on earth the way they worship in heaven. That's another subject for another time. Revelation 3 verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book singular from the book of life but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels what does the book contain names notice Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8 here it's speaking about people whose name is not written in the book of life because they're worshipers of the beast it says there in Revelation 13 verse 8 all who dwell on the earth will worship him that is will worship the beast whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. So what does the book contain? Names. Notice Exodus 32, verses 31 to 33. This is after Israel has worshipped the golden calf, and God says to Moses, I'm going to destroy these people, and I'm going to, I'm going to form another people. I'm sick and tired of them. Of course, God wasn't sick and tired of him. He was simply testing Moses to see how Moses would react. Exodus 32, verse 31. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, notice Moses, yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not... I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Blot me out of your book. The final text I want to read on the contents of the book is found in Daniel 12, verse 1. You know this verse. You don't even have to look for it. It says, at that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone, that's individual, right? Everyone, everyone who is found written in the book. So what does the book contain? Names. What do the books contain? The biography. The character, self-identity, individuality, personality, whatever you want to call it. Now let's study a few things about the judgment. First of all, how many individuals have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? We read that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. I'm going to read it again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Does that include Adam? Uh -huh. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So every person on planet Earth is going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now where does that judgment take place? 
Let's read Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10 again. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. And I know you're thinking, you're saying, now wait a minute. You just said that everyone must appear, but this judgment takes place in heaven. So are we going to go to NASA and take a rocket to heaven to appear before the judgment seat? It says in Daniel 7, verses 9 and 10, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. The Ancient of Days is where? In heaven. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Where do the ten thousand times ten thousand live? In heaven, around God's throne. The court was seated and the books were open. Where does the judgment take place? It takes place in heaven. Now when does that judgment take place? Before the second coming. You say, are you sure? Yeah. Go with me to Revelation 14, 6 and 7, the first angel's message. That's an interesting, interesting two verses that we find here. You know, many times we pass over important things because, you know, we just read quickly. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Let me stop there for a moment. When the everlasting gospel is being proclaimed, are we still on earth? Is the door of probation still open when the gospel is being preached? Yes. If it isn't, why preach it? So when the first angel's message is proclaimed, the door of mercy is still open because it says, take the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. But notice what the first angel continues saying. Saying with a loud voice, verse 7, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment will come. That's not what it says. It doesn't say will come. It's when the first angel proclaims his message, he says the judgment is now. Is come. So let me ask you, does the judgment begin while the gospel is being preached? There you have a clear text in favor of the investigative judgment before the second coming of Christ. Because the judgment begins while the gospel is being preached. Which means that Jesus hasn't come. The judgment is not the coming of Jesus. The judgment takes place before the second coming of Jesus. While the gospel is being preached. Are you catching the point? So the judgment is going to take place when? Before the second coming of Christ. It takes place in heaven. And everyone must appear before the judgment seat. Now, when the judgment takes place, is everyone before the second coming being judged? No. Only those who are found where? In the book of life. Only those who have claimed Jesus as Savior and Lord. You say, well, why isn't everybody judged? I'm, it's very simple. When Jesus comes, he's going to take his people to heaven, those who received him. But before that, he has to reveal who he has a right to take to heaven. There's no urgency with the wicked because they're going to be left here. 
that's why he judges the righteous before the second coming, because he, he's got to show that he has a right to take them when he comes again. He doesn't have to do that with the wicked, because the wicked, he's going to take care of them later, during and after the millennium. So here's the question. When do God's people receive the reward based on what was examined in the judgment? At the second coming. Notice three verses on this point. Matthew 16, verse 27. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 27. Jesus makes it very clear that his people will receive the reward based on what has been examined in the judgment when he comes. It says there in Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. So the works are examined in the judgment, but the reward for the works is given when Jesus comes with the angels. Is that, are you understanding me? Notice Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Once again, when is the reward given? Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. Here Jesus is speaking and he says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. When was it, de when was it determined what the reward was going to be? During the investigative judgment in heaven before the second coming when people appeared before the judgment seat of Christ. He said, wait a minute. How could they appear in heaven? We're going to come back, We're going to, come back to that. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 to 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15 to 17 is the third verse that speaks about when people are going to be rewarded. And this is a passage we always use at funerals. <laughs> For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. When are the dead resurrected? When Jesus comes. So are they rewarded when Jesus comes? Yes. Then we who are alive and remain, are those going to go through the judgment too, those who are alive and remain? Those who are alive when Jesus comes, did they go through the judgment? Yeah, that was the judgment of the living. It's a solemn thing. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. With who? In the clouds. With those who died and resurrected. With them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Let me ask you then, did the dead go to heaven when they died? If they went to heaven when they died, why is Jesus coming to get them? It's not rocket science. And so it says, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So far, so good? Now, who was the first person to be judged? In 1844, I'm going to dramatize so that you can understand. 
October 22, 1844. A voice is heard by the Lord saying, The judgment is set and it now begins. Who is the first person to be judged? The angel, I'm dramatizing so you can understand. The angel says, Adam, present yourself before God's judgment seat. And God says, Adam, come up here. Is that what he says? No. Let me ask you, where was Adam in 1844? Who knows where the flood took him? (laughs) He was dead and he was disintegrated in 1844. So how could he be the first person to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? Let's read first of all where he was. John 5, 28 and 29. John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus clearly said where Adam was in 1844 and all the rest of the dead. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in heaven or hell, is that what it says? No. In which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Where are the dead? Where was Adam in 1844? In his grave. And come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of what? Of condemnation. So Adam in 1844 was dead and disintegrated. So how could he be the first person to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? The answer is very simple. He did not appear there in person. He appeared there through his biography, which was made while he was alive. Let me read you a couple of statements from Ellen White. Great Controversy 482. She says, as the books of record are opened in the judgment, the lives, listen carefully, the lives of all who have believed on Jesus. So who is judged before the second coming? Everyone on earth? No, no. She says, all who have believed on Jesus come in review before God. And then she gives the order. Beginning with those who first lived upon the earth. That would mean who first? Adam. Our advocate presents the cases of each successive generation and closes with the living. He does it in chronological order. Praise the Lord, it's not in alphabetical order because my last name starts with B. (laughs) So he goes in chronological order, beginning with the verse. He does each successive generation in the order in which they claim to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But you say, how how is it possible for everyone to appear before the judgment seat in heaven, before the second coming, if we're on earth? Man, the dead, they're in the grave. The living, we're here walking upon the earth. How can we appear? Listen to this simple explanation by Ellen White. The little lady that had two and a half years of primary education, whom people say was not inspired because they don't read her. Or they read her with the intention of criticizing If you read Ellen White with the intention of criticizing, you'll find plenty of reasons to criticize. But if you come and you want to believe, you will find plenty of evidence to believe. Great Controversy 482. 
the righteous dead will not be raised until after the judgment at which they are counted worthy of the resurrection of life. Hence, they will not be present in person at the tribunal when their records are examined and their cases are decided. So what happens in 1844? God says, who is the first? The angel says, Adam, present yourselves, yourself before the judgment seat. And so the angels go and they get Adam's DVD. <laughs> I'm dramatizing, so you can understand. They, they, put the, they put the DVD in the DVD player, and on the large screen, they see the life of Adam inside and out without missing a beat. Let me ask you, when was that record made? While he was alive. So let me ask you, is there a certain sense in which Adam is appearing before the judgment seat alive? Now, don't misunderstand. He's dead. But, but the record was made while he was alive. So they're seeing the life of Adam. Are you with me or not? They're seeing Adam while he was alive. Now let me share something with you. We talk about the spirit that returns to God. And you know, we have a tendency just to repeat what we've always heard. Say so the spirit, well, that's the breath. And the breath returns to God. There's more to the story than that. I want to read three Bible verses, and then I want to read a statement from Ellen White, which are very, very interesting. The spirit is more than your breath. Let's go to Luke 8, 52 to 56. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. I don't believe that the dead are alive. Luke 8, 52 to 56. This is the daughter of Jairus, the um, synagogue, the guy from the Jewish synagogue. His daughter had died. And let's pick up the story at verse 52. And by the way, you know, I have some new glasses, so if I read wrong, please correct me. Now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, little girl, arise. Then the spirit returned. That's not what it says. It says, her spirit returned. Possessive pronoun. Her spirit returned. And she arose immediately and he commanded that she be given something to eat. When this little girl died, she was hungry. Because the first thing that they do when she wakes up is give her food. Basically, she picked up where she left off. What did God return to this little girl? Did he only return to her the capacity to breathe? Or did he return to her her self-identity? Her self-identity with the breath. Are you following me? Let's notice the second example. Acts 7, 57 to 60. He's talking about the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 7, verses 57 through verse 60. This is when he's being stoned. 
Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive the Spirit. Nope. Receive what? My Spirit. What is Stephen really saying? He's saying, save my personal identity. Keep me in your records. Because you've promised that you're going to what? Resurrect me. And so it says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Let me ask you something. Do you suppose that uh, Stephen is going to recognize Saul of Tarsus? <laughs> That's going to be some encounter. Because <laughs> Stephen doesn't know that Saul was converted. So you can imagine they're walking you know, towards each other on that day. And Stephen... You know, he sees Saul of Tarsus. Why would he remember Saul of Tarsus? Tell me, why would he remember Saul? Because God has returned to him what he was while he was alive. Because God kept a record. Now, it's not alive in heaven. It's not thinking. It's not praising the Lord. It's just a record. Perhaps an electronic record that cannot be accessed until it's, the computer is plugged in. <laughs> yes. It's there, but it needs the power source in order to come to life. See, computers help us understand quite a bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with that illustration of a computer. And so, when Stephen resurrects and he sees Saul of Tarsus coming towards him, he cannot believe his eyes. He says, what? You have got to be kidding me. <laughs> you rascal. No, that's not what he's going to say. He's going to say, Saul, you were saved too. And Saul is going to say, yes, you know, when, we, when you were being stoned, I saw your face like an angel. And I knew that you were right. And then he'll tell him about the Damascus Road. And they'll be buddies throughout eternity. <laughs> Isn't that a wonderful thought? But Stephen will pick up where he left off because God will return to him his life record with the breath. It's not enough to return the breath. What if God simply returned the breath to me without my self-identity? That wouldn't be me. Notice the greatest example. Luke 23, verse 46. Luke 23 and verse 46. This is the death of Christ. Notice what Jesus said as he hung on the cross. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend the Spirit. No, my Spirit. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, Father, you promised that if I would be, that I would be faithful, you would call me from the grave. So, save my spirit. I'm not saying only save my breath. 
Let me ask you, when Jesus resurrected, did he recognize his disciples? Did he remember everything that had happened? Did he remember that Peter denied him? How come? Because when he resurrected, he got his self-identity back. The breath with his life identity was his spirit. Now the amazing thing is that Ellen White grasped this. There's a remarkable statement in volume 6 of the Bible Commentary, page 1093. This is a profound statement. She says, our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection. Though not the same particles of matter or material substance as went into the grave. God doesn't have to rescue every little particle of matter that composed us in this life to make us all over again. Ellen White says that we're going to be made of much finer material than what we have now. And God is going to need a lot more of it. Now notice what she continues saying. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, the character of man is returned to God there to be preserved. Wow, that's profound. The spirit, comma, the character of man, comma, is returned to God there to be preserved. In other words, what is the spirit? It's your character. It's your identity. Then she continues saying, in the resurrection every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life, and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. Let me illustrate the point in another way so you can understand. Let's use the example of a video camera. You own a video camera, and today you use the video camera to film certain scenes. Maybe there's a birthday, and you film the birthday. And then you turn off the camera, and the camera is off for the next 10 years. 10 years later, you take out the camera. Of course, you have to charge the battery. And you start recording another birthday party. Let me ask you, is there any time interval on the tape? No. The tape picks up where what? Where it left off. And so it is when you die, the video camera is turned off. When you resurrect, you pick up where you left off. Now let me read you a statement from Ellen White about the wicked outside the city. This is also a remarkable statement. This is found in Great Controversy, page 664. This is after the millennium. She's speaking about those that are outside the holy city. She says, there are kings and generals who conquered nations, valiant men who never lost a battle, proud, ambitious warriors, 
whose approach made kingdoms tremble. In death, these experience no change. As they come up from the grave, they resume. What does resume mean? It means to start again. They resume the current. She knew that the, that the brain functions on the basis of electricity. She says they resume the current of their thoughts just where it ceased. In other words, if there's a general of an army who has, you know, this is in ancient times, he has a spear, and he's saying to, to the army, he says, let's, he's going to say go, but an but arrow goes through his heart, he says, let's, when he resurrects, he says, go! <laughs> because he picks up exactly where he left off. Because God returns to that person their exact self-identity. So do you understand how the dead are going to stand before God during the millennium? How are the dead going to stand before God during the millennium? We read that passage. It says clearly, the dead stood before God and the books were opened. They're there through the books. You don't have to believe like evangelicals and other, other religions say, oh, you know, it says that the dead appeared before God, so there must be their soul. No, 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 it's not their soul. It's their record, which was made while they were alive, that is examined. So in a certain sense, their life is being examined while they were alive, because the, the record was made while they were alive. Are you with me? Does, this have to, any, does the judgment have anything to do with the state of the dead? Does it have anything to do with the second coming? If you get one of these wrong, you get all of them wrong. Now, let me just address one or two other things. In the sanctuary service, there were two main services in the sanctuary. One service was the daily service. And the other service was the yearly service on the Day of Atonement. The judgment is represented by the Day of Atonement. That's the day in which the sanctuary was cleansed. But from day to day during the daily service, the, the, the lives of individuals in the camp were cleansed. In other words, in the daily service, the sinner was forgiven and cleansed. On the Day of Atonement, the sins that had been placed into the sanctuary through the blood were cleansed from the sanctuary. Now let me mention this. There are those in the Adventist church who say that it is a threat for us to have our sins in the sanctuary. They say, no, when you confess your sins, you know your sins are thrown into the depths of the sea. And they don't study the context of that statement and when they're thrown into the depths of the sea. It's not at the moment when you confess your sins and you're forgiven. Read the context. You see, when a person, when a person confesses their, repents of sin and confesses their sin and says, Jesus, I believe you lived a perfect life. I believe that you carried my sins to the cross. Lord Jesus, would you please forgive me and represent me before the Father? 
Jesus takes that sin, he introduces it into the sanctuary, and it's covered by his blood. Is it a threat to have our sins in the sanctuary? Listen, folks, if they're not there, they're here. Our greatest assurance is to have our sins in the sanctuary, covered by the blood of Jesus. Because in the judgment, God is not going to condemn us if our sins entered through the blood and we were truly repented and confessed our sins and repented. Our greatest assurance is that when our records are examined, the devil is going to say, oh, well, he or she did this and that. And Jesus is going to say, I'm not going to deny it. But they repented and confessed and trusted in me. And my righteousness stands in place of their unrighteousness. So what is your argument now? But all the sins, of course, go into the sanctuary through the blood. The sinner doesn't have the problem anymore. The sinner can go home jumping for joy, say, I've been forgiven. I've been cleansed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not the sanctuary. The daily service, the sinner is cleansed. He's forgiven, in other words. But now the problem, God has it in the sanctuary. So once a year... The sins that had been introduced to the sanctuary through the blood were cleansed from the sanctuary. You remember the Day of Atonement? The Day of Atonement is described in Leviticus chapter 16. All the sins that had entered are cleansed or taken out of the sanctuary. And where are they placed? on the head of the originator, instigator, and perpetuator of sin. The scapegoat. Satan. By the way, Satan is not our savior because before the sins are placed on the scapegoat, the Lord's goat was killed. It's the death of the Lord's scapegoat that cleanses the sanctuary. But Satan suffers the final retribution. And so at the end of the Day of Atonement, all of the sins that were in the sanctuary are cleansed from the sanctuary. And God has clean people and he has a clean sanctuary. It's good news. Now let me ask you, how many of you have things on your life record that you would not like to get back? Raise your hand. Those of you who did not raise your hand, you just have something written which you would not want to have back. It's called lying. <laughs> Don't we all have things on our records that we would like to get rid of? Yes. But now here's the good news. When my name appears before the judgment seat of Christ, my sins have entered through the blood of Jesus. They're covered by his blood. My case is examined. All of the sins that I've repented of, that I've confessed, that I've trusted in Jesus. And I, I said, Jesus, please forgive me. I hate sin. All of those sins, listen carefully, will then be deleted from my record. So that when God returns to me, my individuality or my character, he will return them minus all of the sins that have been deleted on the Day of Atonement. He is going to return to me a clean self-identity, a clean record, a clean character. Because all of the blotches have been removed. 
Is that good news? It's wonderful news. Now let me give you an illustration in closing. I want to use a computer as the illustration. Those of you who are not versed at least on the basics of computer, computers, well, um, I'll try and explain it the best I can. Is the computer a material object? Yes. Does a computer have a brain, so to speak? Yeah, it's a processor, right? It has a brain. Uh, let me ask you, if you buy a computer today in the store, is it the same computer in a year? No. Why, is it the same as anybody else's computer? No. It all depends what you input into it or download. It's your PC, your personal computer. It has its own self-identity, so to speak. Right? Now let me ask you, what needs to happen in order for that computer to be able to function? You've got to plug it in. So the computer's like your body. The process is like your brain. And plugging it in is like the breath of life. And what you input in your computer is how the computer develops its self-identity. It's just an illustration. I know that computers don't think and they don't love and they don't reason. Well, they do reason. But ultimately, it's the human reasoning that makes the computer reason. Now, I want you to imagine that at some point, there is a, an earthquake. Fortunately, nobody is in the home. But the roof falls and smashes the computer into smithereens. Wow. Man, I had a lot of important things on that computer. Do you know what smart people do? They back up every they back up the individuality of the computer. I'm treating it as a person so we can understand. They back it up, don't they? For example, I have Dropbox. All of my documents, my theological documents, all my sermons are on Dropbox. So if my computer gets stolen or it's broken into smithereens, ah, I sleep well. <laughs> because I know that my computer's identity is backed up. Now let me ask you, can I go to the store and buy a new computer that's more powerful than my old computer and input the identity of the first computer? Yes, I can. That is the illustration of what happens with us. You see, we have a material body. It has a processor. In order to function, it has to, ha has to be plugged in. It has to have the breath of life. And as we live, what do we do? We input information. We download information. And it makes us who we are. It makes us have our own self-identity or our own character or our own individuality, like a computer. But listen up. Unless Jesus comes soon, the computer is going to disintegrate. Sooner or later, if Jesus doesn't come, we're going to die. We're going to go to the ground. And the body and the brain are going to 
disintegrate. God knows it. So God says, I'm going to save a backup in the books. And so he saves the identity of the computer, so to speak, our identity in the heavenly records, in the books. What is he going to do when he comes? When Jesus comes, he's going to give us a new body, much more powerful than the first one. And he's going to give that body the capacity to function. And he's going to put in the brain of that body what? The identity that we had while we were alive. It will be us. But before God returns our self-identity, he used the delete button in heaven when he went through our record. Oh, yeah, he committed this sin, repented of it, blood of Jesus, delete, 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 delete. So that when he returns our record to us, he returns it with everything negative deleted. Because another is going to suffer the final retribution for that. So what do you think? Do you understand the state of the dead and the judgment and the second coming a little better? It's a different way of looking at it. But it makes all the sense in the world. Now let me share this with you. How is our relationship with Christ? You know, which resurrection we come up in depends on our present relationship with Jesus. You know, people ask me, they say, Pastor Bohr, aren't you afraid of flying? I say, no. Why should I? I say, well, because the, the airplane might crash. I say, yeah. And what? Oh, well, if the airplane crashes, you'll die. Yeah? You're not afraid of dying? No. Because my life is in Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are in Christ, they have nothing to worry about. No reason to fret. That's why we must be sure that our life is covered by Christ. That we have truly repented of sin. And we have confessed, not admitted, that we have confessed our sins with agony of souls because sin hurts Jesus. And that we have claimed Christ as our righteousness. Then we can sleep well at night. And if we should die, we, we don't worry. No, for the Christian, death is just sleeping a little bit longer than usual. It's not the end. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, how much damage can a shadow do to us? Oh, death, where is your sting? How much damage can a bee do without a stinger? For the Christian, death is meaningless if we are in Christ. You know, as Adventists, we talk about the close of probation. 
I call it the corporate close of probation. There's a time when probation will close for the whole world. But if we should die tonight, probation closed. So let's not look to the, to the Sunday law and, and the, you know, all of these things that are going to happen and say, well, you know, um, I've got to be ready for the moment probation closes because when we die, probation closed. So we have to be certain at each instant of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We have to be certain that we hate sin and we love Jesus. Nobody can love Jesus and love sin because Jesus hated sin. You want to know how terrible sin is? Visit Gethsemane. You want to know how sin, how terrible sin is? Visit the cross and hear Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's how bad sin is. The reason we sin is because we're not looking at Jesus. We're watching too much television. And television confirms us in our sin. Strengthens our sin. Whereas when we contemplate Jesus, sin becomes abhorrent. We say, miserable man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then we'll hear Jesus say, I will. <laughs> Praise the Lord. So we must all decide this evening to confirm our relationship with Christ. Because I believe all of us have given our lives to Christ. But we must reconfirm. I want to ask tonight, how many of you want to reconfirm with raised hand Jesus, I want you in my life. Jesus, I want you to be my representative in heaven. I want you to intercede for me. I hate sin and I love you. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the clarity of your holy word. We thank you that as Adventists we have not believed cunningly devised fables. We thank you for the spirit of prophecy that helps make these sayings so clear. Father, just knowing them in our heads, knowing the doctrines of the state of the dead and the investigative judgment of the second coming is not sufficient. We must have the experience. So I ask, Lord, that as you've seen the raised hands, we all want to reconfirm and strengthen our relationship with your beloved son, Jesus. Lord, we want to come to hate sin, and we want to love you, and we want to love your son, Jesus. I ask that you will instill, that you will plant that love in our hearts, that you will pour it in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, for having been with us and for speaking to our minds and to our hearts because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.